You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings, right? Now the good news. The studied ingredients in Lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite under control. Now, if your life is a bit stressful like mine and you want to lose weight, add Lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. Now get 15% off and free shipping at takelean.com. That's takelean.com and enter the promo code justnews15. That's the promo code justnews15 at takelean.com. One more time, takelean.com. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a healthcare provider. Welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where we have a lot of it today. Uh, you're not going to believe this, but American pension funds. Yes, those earned by federal workers and uh, military retirees, their 401ks. They're about to be invested in Chinese military companies. I'm not making this up. This is about to happen. You're going to want to get the scoop from us from a great story by Christine Dolan at Just the News and more new documents, more new revelations about the FBI's misconduct in the Russia case against Donald Trump and his campaign. Oh, my gosh. Did the FBI know how bad its case was right from the start? Christopher Steele, he was known from the start to possibly be a victim of Russian disinformation. And yet we subjected the country to two and a half years of a bogus investigation. You're going to want to hear that. And my special guest today, Charlie Kirk, the founder of Turning Point USA, one of the bright young conservative activists in America, close to the Trumps, uh, on television often, talking across hundreds and nearly a thousand, two thousand college campuses and high school campuses. He's here to talk about the battle over liberty uh, that began long before on college campuses that's playing out right now in the pandemic. You're going to want to hear his thoughts on all things China, the pandemic. Right after this commercial break, we're going to get started. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And uh, before uh, we get to Charlie Kirk, an interview you're not going to want to miss, uh, I want to bring you up to speed on some developments at Just the News and breaking news that we've had over the last 24 hours. If you go to justthenews.com right now, you're going to see this amazing story by Christine Dolan, one of my colleagues. She's done some great work on the pandemic and on the failures of the federal science bureaucracy, <clears throat> going all the way back to the early 2000s when they didn't jump on uh, potential solutions for a future coronavirus pandemic when they had good warning signs, good directional signs about treatments that would work. Uh, but she's got a new one out today, and it is pretty remarkable. It is a story that reveals that the five-person Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, yes, I'm sure you've never heard of it before, don't worry, neither did I, uh, it, this is a board that oversees all of the 401k pension funds that uh, um, uh, American retirees of the federal government and of the U.S. military, it makes its decisions where to invest that money, how to make returns on it, how to make sure that uh, federal and military retirees, 401k funds and future retirement funds grow through investment. It's got an important job. Uh, it's got tens of billions of dollars of money under its control. 
Well, guess what decision it's about to make. It is about to proceed with a plan at first voted on in 2017, and it finally approved in 2019 to take the money that all of our hard-earned federal workers and military retirees did defending our country, doing our government's work, and put it into a new global index fund that, I'm not making this up, is going to invest in bad actors in the Chinese and Russian markets. Yes, in an effort to make more profit, to make more return on investment for these retirees, we're going to take the retirement funds of our federal government, people who worked in the CIA, the Defense Department, and in all of our military branches, and we're going to put it into Chinese military companies, Russian companies, companies that have been sanctioned in the past for human rights violations, for illegal military trade with Iran and Syria. That is what's about to happen, and it doesn't look like anyone can stop it at this point. It is on a final uh, descent for landing. This could happen as much as later this year, and dis- and uh, this is going to happen despite the fact that the Navy Secretary, former Navy Secretary Richard Spencer, then the Navy Secretary last November, wrote a letter calling this insanity. Let me read you uh, one of the great quotes uh, that he had in that level back in October before the board fi- uh, gave final approval to this. He said to Richard Spencer, then the Secretary of the Navy under President Trump, as Secretary of the Navy, I have a duty to represent the dedicated members of America's naval forces and ensure that, as investors, they are not unwittingly helping to underwrite the threats that China and Russia pose to their lives. For the good of the country and for those who serve it, the board must reverse its decision to to adopt the all-countries world index and do it before a single dollar from its fund pays for a weapon system's aimed at our direction. That request fell on deaf ears. The board rejected Spencer's concerns. He wasn't the only one to raise it. Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, Senator Jeanine Shaheen of uh, New Hampshire, a Democrat, a Republican, bipartisan agreement. This is not a good idea. Do we really want to take our hard-earned retirees' money? Yeah, we know it's not tax dollars. We know it's the personal investments of these retirees. But do we really want to use it to grow uh, China's economic superiority, its military superiority, Russia's military superiority? This is a bad idea, these two lawmakers wrote. They wrote letters. Newt Gingrich wrote an op-ed. Lots of people wrote about this over the last few months. And guess what? Not even the pandemic can stop it. Not even the revelations that China didn't give us full visibility into this virus until it was too late. Nothing is going to change it. This pension board is determined to take the hard-earned federal retirement funds of uh, federal workers and of military personnel and invest it in a new index where companies like military defense contractors from China, Russia, can uh, get U.S. funds and grow their wares, grow their abilities, grow their capabilities. This is going to happen. If you want to read about it, if you're outraged, go to justthenews.com right now and take a look at what Christine Dolan has written. Very, very powerful story. Very, very important story. And something that's been flying below our radar in the media. You've got to read about this. You've got to learn up and read up on it. It's very, very important. Similarly, yes, the documents keep getting declassified. We waited a long time, and now we've had an avalanche of um, declassifications in the Russia case. Uh, yesterday, about three dozen new uh, documents were declassified. What did they show us? More of what I told you about last week and earlier this week. The FBI knew in 2015, it was warned, Christopher Steele's contacts with Russian oligarchs were too suspicious. And the, and the people who brought this to the attention of the FBI, their 
organized crime division urged the FBI counterintelligence division to do a reassessment, to reassess Steele as a potential source. The FBI didn't do it. It allowed him to write the Steele dossier to drive the FISA warrant that occurred during the 2016 election. And only later in 2017 did the FBI take a look at Christopher Steele and discover the following things. He had been the victim of Russian disinformation. He had taken information from a uh, an avowed supporter of Hillary Clinton who was trying to defeat Donald Trump. He failed to authenticate much of the information that he provided the do uh, in the dossier, and the FBI failed to verify it before they applied for the FISA warrant. This story, the headline I'll read you, FBI repeatedly warned Steele dossier was fed by Russian misinformation and even a Clinton supporter. It's on the front page of justthenews.com. You're going to want to download these documents, take a look at it. I'm going to point you to one uh, thing in this um, revelation that we're going to be talking about and writing about in the next day, but I'm going to give it to you early here on the podcast. It's very, very important. People need to understand beyond the failures of vetting the Steele dossier, allowing a biased, unverified, inaccurate, misleading Russian disinformation-fed dossier to to uh, lead the uh, the spying on the Trump campaign or lead to the spying on the Trump campaign, and particularly Carter Page. There is a very troubling footnote that got uh, declassified as part of these uh, documents yesterday, and it talks about two possible violations of Carter Page's civil liberties because the FBI did things, took actions under the FISA warrant that uh, were not allowed to be done uh, uh, under the law, not allowed to be done under the FISA court's authority for the four FISA warrants that were approved to spy on Carter Page. I'm just going to read this to you because this was a revelation we didn't know about. But in 2019, after Bill Barr took over as attorney general, the National Security Division of uh, the Justice Department sent a, a series of letters to the FISC, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and it was concerning the Carter Page FISA application. And here is what the footnote reads. I'm just going to read it to you so you can absorb its importance. The letters advise the court of two incidents in which the FBI failed to comply with the SMPs, the procedures, that is, applicable to physical searches conducted pursuant to the final FISA orders issued by the court on June 29, 2017. According to the letter, the FBI took and retained on an FBI-issued cell phone photographs of certain property taken in connection with a FISA-authorized physical search on July 13, 2017, which NSD assessed did not comport with the uh, procedures allowed for the court. In addition, in a separate incident on July 29th, 2017, the FBI took photographs in connection with another FISA authorized physical search and transferred the photographs to an electronic folder on the FBI's classified secret network. According to NSD, the National Security Division of Justice Department, court staff contacted an NSD official in response to this letter and asked when the information at issue would be removed from non-compliant FBI systems. They also asked if other cases had been impacted. On October 9th, 2019, the National Security Division sent another letter to the court advising it that the FBI completed the remedial process for the information associated with the Carter Page FISA application and uh, had with, taken them off, removed the information from the systems where it had been gathered. What does this mean in a, a nutshell? The FBI used a secret physical search of somebody, maybe Carter Page, of a facility, something, and while there, they did things that they were not allowed to do under the law, under the search warrant, under the FISA court's authority, including taking pictures of certain property that was being seized from this person's home or this individual's site. These are the sort of things the FBI has been doing. It isn't just about 
submitting false information. It isn't about uh, failing to vet sources. It isn't just about uh, uh, making sure that information was verified before it was given to the court to justify the infringement of, of one's liberties. Even when they're conducting a search, they can't seem to follow the law. According to the FBI's own admissions in these footnotes, in the Justice Department Inspector General's report about failures in the Russia case. If you get a chance, go to the website. You can download all the footnotes, learn about all these things. But once again, we have a situation where the FBI, on every step of the Russia case, even just complying with how you do a search in a person's home or in a person's facility, um, they couldn't get it right. There are big red flag warning signs about the FBI in these footnotes. Read them. Read the story I wrote. Uh, you're, we're going to learn a lot more about the U.S. government's conduct in Russia. We're only at the tip of the iceberg. This is one more revelation that should give us trouble, give us concern about civil liberties and the protection of them in the era of the 21st century. And on that note, when we come back from a commercial break, Charlie Kirk is here. He's going to be talking about that issue, the infringement of civil liberties in the pandemic on college campuses, things that started long ago and things we're dealing with right now in the middle of a crisis. You're not going to want to miss this provocative interview with one of America's uh, most quotable and uh, most public, most available uh, young conservatives. He's a really great interview. You're going to want to listen. We'll be right back after the commercial break to talk with Charlie Kirk, the founder of Turning Point USA. Hey, folks, if you're a homeowner and you're like me, you want to protect your home, right? But when's the last time you checked on the title to your home? If you never have, listen to this. A new report on homeowners shows we all now have $16 trillion in equity. That's an all-time high in America. That's why you need protection from a scam the FBI calls house stealing. That's when the equity in all of our homes is the target, sadly, of scammers. If nobody's watching the title to your home, these scammers can transfer your title to their name, take out loans, and your equity could be gone. Poof, gone. You have to protect your equity from this despicable crime right now with triple lock protection from my good friends at HomeTitleLock.com. The first step is to check on your home's title to see if it's still in your name. Sign up with your address at HomeTitleLock.com and be sure to use the promo code JUSTNEWS. They're going to send you a complete title scan of your home's title in your first 30 days of triple lock home title protection. That's legendary protection, by the way. It's free. HomeTitleLock.com. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. One more time. Go to HomeTitleLock.com today and protect your most important asset, the equity in your home. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest today, Charlie Kirk, the founder of Turning Point USA, a person that the president and his family listens to often and who millions of conservative young people around the country look to for leadership and guidance. He's here with us. Charlie, welcome. John, great to be here. You're doing amazing work and uh, you're making a great impact for our terrific country. So God bless you. Honored to be here. Oh, thank you so much. And you are too. You're doing some amazing things. And, uh, and speaking of that, uh, for a long time, you have been a voice warning of the encroaching uh, government uh, on all of our freedoms, on, on free speech, on campus, on, on freedom and personal conduct, uh, on all of the rights that our founding fathers gave us in the Constitution. And here now in the pandemic, many of the things that you've warned of are really coming true in real life. And I wonder if you could give me some of the things that you're watching unfold and how they concern you as it relates to the Constitution and all of our liberties. Yeah, well, thank you, John. And I always like to say whatever happens on 
college campuses will soon happen in the halls of Congress. And I guess I can extend that to whatever happens on college campuses will soon happen in the governor's mansions. <laughs> Remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, for years, I have been warning about how college campuses have become almost these islands of totalitarianism, that we're not teaching our students first principles, that students uh, don't understand or respect the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, uh, or any of the natural rights that we have um, just based on our, our existence. They, the government does not grant us these rights. They're supposed to protect those rights. And I think during this pandemic, we have seen uh, one of the most uh, egregious violations of our first principles and civil liberties in American history. And I do want to commend the American people for um, playing team ball, if you will, for the last couple of weeks for a greater purpose of stopping uh, this disease. And I, I also do want to say that I, I applaud these Americans that are now pushing back after um, after politely uh, listening to the guidelines for weeks. They are now, there's understandable frustration happening in the country. And I support that sort of peaceful and civil uh, protesting, especially against um, what I call, you know, the tyrants, which is Governor Whitmer from Michigan. I mean, what she has decreed uh, where you can't buy certain types of plants, you can't visit your neighbor's house. It, it's outrageous. It is Orwellian police state style governance, and it's very dangerous. And I, I also, as a Christian, I and John, as you know, we have the Falkirk Center for Faith and Liberty at Liberty University with my great friend, Jerry Falwell Jr., who's a terrific patriot. Of course. You know, and I, I don't mind trying to at least pause America for a, a, a moment if it's done consistently and appropriately and with no form of discrimination. But I have not heard a good reason why we as Christians were not allowed to socially distance, walk into a church to even take communion. Uh, if it was 10 people at a time, I would have waited in line for three hours if I could have walked into a church. But yet I can go down the street and wait in line, socially distance, to go to a liquor store. Even worse, when I went into Lowe's or when I went to some of these home improvement stores, there were hundreds of people and no social distance enforcement at all. And so I, I look at that, and Attorney General Bill Barr has issued guidelines that agrees with my observations that there's no reason why you know, a liquor store should be deemed essential and a church should not if they are willing to abide by the same social distancing guidelines. Uh, and that, that's a very concerning trend, I think, John, because um, I, I would make the argument that people's access to religion or to their uh, exercise of religion is just as essential as somebody's freedom to be able to consume alcohol if it's done in a socially distanced CDC compliant way. I'm not supporting some of the pastors that continue to have mass gatherings or mass congregations, but um, I, I, I'm very concerned that uh, we, we as Americans don't realize how much freedom and liberty we have been giving up in the last uh, couple couple weeks here. And I am, I am a little bit um, hopeful that we're starting to see people start to push back against it. There clearly has. And I think the attorney general's guidance, <clears throat> which uh, came out Tuesday in, in the Mississippi case, I think uh, snapped everybody to attention, particularly in realizing how silly it is that I could go to McDonald's and do a drive through without any legal consequence. But if I were in Kentucky and I did a drive through to pick up communion, which was done the same way as, as it was at McDonald's, I could be in violation of law. My license plate could be taken and I could be arrested or fined. Um, 
equal treatment under the law, I think, was one of the messages that the attorney general delivered. Why do you think that that idea hasn't been more endemic in our, our, our political leaders? Why didn't they think through these things, how silly it looks that it's OK to go to Lowe's or McDonald's, but not OK to go to church in the same fashion? How did we lose that sense of common sense? Yeah, exactly. And it's okay to go to a marijuana dispensary, but it's not okay to go to a church. Right. So I, I have a couple theories with this. One, um, there wasn't that much thought that went into this. And um, religious practice and churches have been continually de-emphasized in our culture and in our society over the last couple of decades. They don't have the same sort of reverence to the general kind of American political intelligentsia that they should or they once had. And that's too bad. And that's disappointing. Uh, secondly, for, for whatever reason, um, I, I do believe this. The left wanted to see what they could get away with, uh, and now they're 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 seeing how far they can push that boundary. And you know, I, I I talked about and I asked the provocative question: What if I hated America? What if someone who really hated America? What would they try to do? And I'm not saying all these people do, but if you really hated first principles or hated or had contempt at least for you know, the American journey and the American story, well, why not try to push the boundaries? Why not try to push the envelope of, you know, American first principles and practice of religion? And so I'm very troubled by that, John. And I, and look, Christians, we, you know, by definition, we, we don't want to get into a fight. We want to be peaceful. And we want to be long-suffering and we want to be conciliatory. However, I think you're going to see a breaking point and now that it's been five or six weeks with Christians that have been deprived of the opportunity to go to church and they're starting to see, you know, marijuana dispensaries, liquor stores and home improvement stores still open or as in that wonderful point you made, why can I go through a drive through to get a Big Mac, but I can't to go get the Eucharist? And that's that's very troubling. And I, I would love to be able to chalk it up to, um, you know, just a oversight. But. With the amount of backlash that happened and there and the governors and the civil leaders um, just not inability, but their reluctance to even change it, I would I would actually go a step further that there is a growing hostility towards people of faith and towards church and towards Christians in this country. Um, and I think that needs to be fought in the courts. And I would actually even argue that some of these governors need to pay a political price uh, for what they did here. Well, you saw a little bit of that yesterday with the protest out in Michigan against Governor Whitmer, thousands of people coming out to the Capitol and, and let it be known that they didn't appreciate how restricted life had become in Michigan. Does that become a movement? Do we go elsewhere? Do you see it happening in California, New York, uh, uh, Virginia? Uh, do we, are we going to see more of that, you think, or was Michigan just a moment of uh, catharsis where the residents just blew up and got angry? Oh, I, I think it. I wouldn't be surprised if more of these start to pop up around the country. And, you know, John, I cut my political teeth, if you will, when I first met you many years ago during the Tea Party movement. Right. And at a firsthand seat of how quickly a grassroots organic movement can grow and metastasize and strengthen. And now the governor's response was awful, where she basically came out either today or last night and said, this was horrible, how, you know, this was not handled properly. And, Instead of saying that, you know, maybe she went too far or trying to adjust the guidelines, um, you're, you're going to see restlessness, especially, you know, I take Ventura County, for example, John, where a dear right. friend of mine, Rob McCoy, is the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Thousand Oaks. Ventura County, I don't know the, the numbers as of today, but a couple of days ago, they had 13 deaths. Now, 
I'm not trying to diminish that. I'm not trying to say that's insignificant. Those are 13 human beings with stories and their brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles. However, 13 individuals in a county of 800,000 people and putting the whole county on continual lockdown now till May 15th, which is at least another month. Um, yeah, people are going to start to ask the question, how much of my livelihood, how much of my multi-generations of sacrifice am I willing just to give up for something that doesn't seem like a trade-off is very rational. And especially when you have people's businesses that are continually being shuttered now that the SBA loans have run out. And John, I do want to transition to that because I think it's despicable what Nancy Pelosi is doing because I know business people that have applied for this loan that have been told, hey, we've run out of money. We got no help for you. Run out of money. Yeah. There is a sec. There's a second. There's a second round of furloughs happening right now. I talked to five business people in the last 24 hours that said, "Charlie, can you call the treasury? Can you help us out?" I said, "No, I can't. Sorry." And they told me there, you know, what was happening. They said, "If we don't get some form of a assuredness that this money is coming, we're laying off 80 percent of our workforce because the help is not on the way." And they've been dipping into savings. They've been dipping into private credit lines. And so you're going to see another round of layoffs because of Pelosi's grandstanding uh, with this. And that is just, uh, it, it begs the question, John, and I don't love, you know, getting too far into these provocative questions, but why is she doing this? Does she want more people on the unemployment rolls? Um, it, it's, it's so simple, so black and white that you have business owners that have leveraged their entire livelihood and their dreams and their aspirations and their vision to a specific business enterprise that has now been put in jeopardy because of government closures. And now you might see 20, 25, 30 million people out of work because of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer's reluctance to replenish and expand uh, the Payroll Protection Act. It's been a remarkable um, uh, American moment because if you go back through history after Pearl Harbor, after 9-11, there was a moment where people just put their partisan politics aside saying there's something bigger, more important about our country. But this pandemic really has never had that bipartisan moment. Sure, they passed the $2 trillion um, aid package after the Democrats got you know all the concessions they wanted. But um, it almost seems as though for the first time in our country in the midst of a real crisis, and this is a real crisis, that uh, politics did continue to prevail and that the American uh, need took a second seat. Why, why have we reached that point? I mean, you talk to young people that are disillusioned with government. How did we get to this point that our government leaders couldn't have set aside their politics for even a few minutes in the middle of a major crisis? Yeah, it's such an important point, John. And I'm still theorizing how it got to be this bad. But kind of the working theories that I have and is that the political class has benefited so much from the status quo over the last couple decades in both parties, the ruling class, if you will, that any sort of changes and any sort of alterations to that, that th- those policy proposals, the bad trade deals, the deindustrialization of America, the appeasement to China, the endless wars overseas, the growth of the fourth branch of government that you have covered beautifully, wonderfully, and better than anyone else uh, that I can think of uh, in the last couple of years that have exposed the deep state antics or the double-sided innuendo of our government of our government leaders and what they did against the duly elected president of the United States, that that is actually the priority of the of the political class. And there's people in both parties. I'm not saying it's just Republican Democrats, but any sort of change to that. So, for example, when the president wants to hold China accountable, when the president wants to push back against the kind of the global the globalist 
uh, consensus, all of a sudden they, they, they find that to be intolerable. They find that to be a non-starter. And so when he, when the president announces that he's going to defund the World Health Organization, or at least halt funding, I should say, not defund it, right. which according to certain calculations, hundreds of millions of dollars a year we spend on the World Health Organization. And we spent, that's a, an unbelievable amount of money. These are city budgets. I mean, the amount of money we spend on the World Health Organization, the entire operating yeah, it's, budget. It's a big Pittsburgh. ticket. I mean, it's, it's a huge thing. And yet the, the one thing they're supposed to do is that at the very minimum, tell us the truth. I mean, we are their biggest shareholder and stockholder and fiduciary and monetary uh, investor, if you will, or contributor. And they lied and covered up this virus and has, have been in cahoots with the CCP and the Chinese Communist Party. And look at the trillions of dollars of wealth that has disappeared, evaporated. Uh, look at the tens of millions of people's lives that have been altered that they might not get back, John. You look at the suicide rates, you look at depression, anxiety. I know people that are really struggling right now with social isolation, depression, alcoholism, drug usage. We're talking about multi-generational issues that are being created uh, because the World Health Organization or the Chinese Communist Party was not clear with us about this virus and this disease. This is not an insignificant uh, development. And so when the president rightfully says that the way we've been doing things has been incorrect and misguided, um, the ruling class takes that personally. I mean, you have Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer, who have been in Washington, D.C., in leadership in either Congress or the Senate, on committees, chairing committees, in the higher, higher ranks of D.C. for a combined 110 years. So when someone comes along who's only been there for three and a half and created the greatest economy in American history, started to actually expose the deep state antics of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FISA court abuse, which, again, you deserve huge credit for, they get really angry and upset because that old adage says, well, look, the emperor actually might not have any clothes. And so this is they, they are they've had enough They're Unfortunately, they now put their own um, their own globalist, I would argue, anti-American objectives above what is actually best for the American people. When uh, Republicans and conservatives have tried to push back in this, one of the things that instantly is thrown up is, well, you're not for public safety. If you're if you're letting in a people congregate in any way, you're you're just anti-safety. You're reckless. You don't care. Um, how might the founding fathers? You've done a lot of study on this when you the, the great work you're doing at Liberty University. Uh, you you really bring us back to the foundings of this country. How might the founding fathers take a look at this moment in history right now and say? Do I recognize that American eye? I'd be curious how, how you would handicap their assessment of where we are today. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenal question. I mean, the, the old, the, 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 the argument between absolute safety and freedom goes all the way back to Socrates versus Plato versus Aristotle, where they were discussing this. And the consensus of Western society and the decision that the founding fathers made was that we are willing to... Live, to live with a higher degree or a higher risk, if you will, of being, quote unquote, unsafe if we're able to be free. And a very simple example is uh, speed limits. We, we as a society have come to the agreement that 70 miles an hour on the highway is reasonable. 110 miles an hour, not reasonable in the beltway outside of Washington, D.C., but 70 miles an hour is reasonable. Now, People die because of that speed limit. It's horrible, but it's true. Now, if we had a 20-mile-an-hour speed limit that was enforced by a police state, less people would die. But what would the trade-off be? People wouldn't be able to get places as fast, and we'd be much less efficient, and people would get very, very frustrated because you'd have these amazing machines that we've built, these automobiles that would not be able to 
be towards its optimal usage and utility. The point being is we have had these discussions for years. And of course, in this particular instance, I think that we have I think we have now allowed in certain states and certain areas, we have allowed the cure to be worse than the disease, especially with a lot of these models completely blowing up. A lot of these models that have been totally flawed and misleading, I mean, some of these models conjecture two and a half million deaths. We're nowhere even near that, John, now. Um, And now that the, the argument needs to be made, which is, is liberty, as the founding fathers articulated first in the Declaration and later the Constitution, is liberty fundamental to the American experience and to our country? Because if we don't actually accept that, John, then we might never get America back to where we were before the shutdown. And liberty comes at a specific cost and price. It comes at the acceptance that people have to be responsible for themselves. And so if you have liberty and you might be in that at-risk demographic, maybe that means you personally might quarantine yourself more. You personally might wear a mask and you might socially distance. But don't now that the whole country has gone through this very draconian, um, longer than some people would have been comfortable with national shutdown, at what point are we going to say we have sacrificed enough? Are we willing to reopen so that people can actually get back to the livelihoods as they see fit? And if we don't, if we come to the agreement that liberty is not a fundamental value, and instead, like the French do, that fraternity and safety and comfort is a foundational value, which was never part of the American Trinity or never part of the American founding principles, um, then we're going to have a country that looks a lot different. And that's why Europe is much more comfortable with these long shutdowns. This is not this has not been built from the spirit of the ethos of America at all. And I think you're going to start to see that play itself out uh, more in the coming days. When I was a, a young re- campaign reporter for the AP, I'd go up to New Hampshire to cover the primary like all the reporters did. And I was in a restaurant one day and this uh, older fellow came in and he flipped a coin at me that had on the back of it the New Hampshire motto, which, of course, is live free or die. And he said, you know what this means, right? And I said, oh, I've seen it many times and it's it's endemic to our society. And he told me the story of General John Stark, who was one of New Hampshire's more famous Revolutionary War figures. And uh, when he was at the end of his life and, and uh, the British-American War was going on, uh, he was invited to come back and celebrate one of the victories of the Revolutionary War. And he, he couldn't do it because he was too ill. But he said so he wrote a letter, which became the motto. And I didn't know this until I met this guy in this restaurant. But he said, live free or die. Death is not always the worst of all evils, meaning that in, in our culture, liberty is worth dying for. And I think that um, the way you just described the founding fathers reminded me of that moment in that restaurant um, many moons ago in New Hampshire that uh, – that that young or that older gentleman from New Hampshire understood the the core embrace that we have of of liberty and freedom in this country. It's very well said. Yeah, and it's going. It's now, and and it's going to come to a, a full. It's going to come to a full throated national debate. And the left's easy attack is well, you don't care about the well being of other people. First of all, I do care about now the twenty five million people that have been displaced out of work and the thousands of people that are committing suicide every week, and the tens of thousands that are now addicted to substances. I do care about them. But I also care about the freedom that you're limiting. I care about the dreams that you're crushing. I care about the generations of family businesses. I mean, John, I'm here in Phoenix, Arizona. There's a three-generation Italian-owned business restaurant right down the street, and they don't know if they're going to make it. They just don't. And that's three generations of wealth, sacrifice. It's 45 years of doing their, their due diligence, making sure that they never serve a bad meal, waking up at 5 a.m. and going home at midnight, all that might be gone. 
And so that sort of destruction, I'm not comfortable with just because at this point we say we have to be under the auspice of being, quote unquote, more safe. There's nothing safe with when you allow businesses like that and stories like that and journeys like that and experiences like that to disappear overnight. It is. It is amazing. And every time I walk into a, <clears throat> a restaurant or a small mom, pa hardware shop the last couple of days, you can see the fear in the owner's eyes. They know they're living minute by minute now, paycheck or sale by sale. It's uh, it is remarkable. Uh, everybody knows you from the founding of Turning Point USA and the extraordinary movement. Could you just give uh, our listeners a little bit of sense of the sheer size of how big Turning Point has gotten? How many young people in America have been uh, reached through the, through your movement? Yeah, thank you, John. We're on 2,000 high school and college campuses now across the wow. country, 160 people on staff. Uh, not many campuses to visit right now, so it's been uh, it's been a great experience for us. We look at everything through an optimistic lens to kind of adapt and be more agile, and we've been doing pretty dominant work on social media kind of during this uh, waiting period and been doing digital conferences and obviously had to postpone some events, but that's you know, kind of Join, join the party, I guess, if you will, everyone has. But we've been doing great, John. And once kind of life gets back to normal, God willing, uh, we're going to hit 1,000 certified chapters across the country, which is 1,000 groups that have actually been recognized by their high school or university. We had 5,000 students at the end of December in Palm Beach, and the president spoke, and Rush Limbaugh spoke, and they, we actually got them on stage at the same time, which was a really special moment uh, that was uh, pretty pretty unique. They've only done that a couple times together, and so that was really cool. And uh, we have the nation's largest young women's leadership summit. We do our black leadership summit every single fall. So uh, we're very blessed. Uh, we, we believe we're making a significant difference for the future of our country. And uh, the college campuses are going to determine the type of country we live in. And even if some of your listeners aren't necessarily doctrinaire conservatives, um, I venture a guess that a lot of your listeners are committed to the pursuit of truth and to the Socratic method and to you know, real meaning, meaningful dialogue. Unfortunately, college campuses are not allowing that. And more times than not, campuses are obviously the, you know, the exceptions being Liberty University and colleges such as that with great leadership. But, but colleges mostly have become places where debate, dialogue, and discussion is completely suppressed, where it's a predominant one-sided discussion of leftist orthodoxy, where anti-Americanism uh, reigns supreme, where professors silence other opinions, and uh, students are not really given both sides of the issue, if not you know anything more than just one side of the, of the issue from the left. And so we're having great success. We're very blessed, and, and we're excited for what's ahead. This will be just like 9-11 was for the generation that grew up around 9-11 or grew up around the Cuban Missile Crisis, grew up around Pearl Harbor. This pandemic will be a generational moment for the, the generation of millennials and the generation coming up behind them. What takeaways will young people take from this moment? When, when we look back a year from now, what will we have learned, particularly from our young people, about uh, our government, our society, and uh, the road ahead for America? Uh, this will be this young generation's moment, I think. So what are they going to take from it? It's a great question. I can tell you what I hope they, they think about. I mean, I, I hope that this new generation uh, really becomes increasingly uh, skeptical, if not um, I don't want to say antagonistic because that's not the right word, but um, is in no desire to make amends with China. I think that the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping are the greatest enemy of the United States. They have international empire-style goals. They have routinely lied 
stolen and cheated at the highest possible levels. They have deindustrialized our economy, and this virus uh, is beyond uh, beyond acceptable for anything that we we deem um, a friend or an ally or even a meaningful trading partner. So I hope this generation that's experiencing this uh, remembers who is responsible for it. And secondly, I hope that our generation. Uh, remembers this moment and wants to wants to preserve liberty and remembers how uncomfortable and unhappy and how restless people were when they were forced to stay at home, when they were told what to do by the government through these irrational edicts and these orders. And I hope our generation says, you know what, we're really lucky that we do have first freedoms. And I don't want to go back to that. I didn't enjoy it. That wasn't fun. I remember businesses shutting down everywhere. I remember people's lives being ruined. I remember losing friends to suicide. That liberty and freedom is actually a moral stance for government. And so what remains to be seen, John, because I hope that the left doesn't try to hijack this into some sort of narrative to advance Medicare for all, which they will, or to try to blame some sort of 1% for not reacting correctly or put it on Trump. I don't think those arguments will really relate, though. I really don't. I'm not seeing that in the uh, in even the persuadables. I'm not seeing that in even the people on the soft left, the hard left, yes, but I'm seeing a growing consensus that China is the enemy uh, for this century and for our generation, that people want to get back to work. There is a restlessness. Uh, So I am hopeful and I'm optimistic because this is going to be one of the most generationally instructive moments in American history. You can go back over the last 40 or 50 years, things that people remember so accurately and clearly that were foundational. And you can go back to the Kennedy presidential election, landing on the moon. Vietnam War, Reagan versus Carter, you can the wall falling down with Berlin, 9-11, 2008 financial crisis, Obama getting elected, and then probably coronavirus. I've obviously, obviously missed plenty in that you know list, but you get what I'm saying, that this is something that is that important, that impactful. And so uh, I pray and hope that the takeaway lessons will be uh, congruent and consistent uh, with the accurate worldview of what's actually happening. There's a, a call to action that I've seen in, uh, in some of the Twitter feeds of young people that one of the things that young people have realized is this idea that we couldn't get masks, that we couldn't get basic supplies that Americans had made for generations, but now no longer are here, that there's an opportunity for a manufacturing renaissance, a uh, American uh, growth again, where everyone's celebrating the drivers and all the people that are out there delivering food and product to people. But we also uh, seen a lot of clarion calls that we need to start making more of our own stuff here and never be in the position of having to compete for a global supply somewhere else. Do you think that that is going to be one of the uh, policy debates we'll have in the summer and fall this year about reviving a manu- manufacturing in, in pharmaceuticals, masks, all the things that we were short of at the beginning of this crisis? Well, we need to. And John, I've talked about this for the last year and a half. You as I studied China more, and you know, and I've I've read Gordon Chang's literature, and I right. uh, spent time with Senator Cotton, Senator Danes, and I, I've become a hawk on China. And I, I asked the question rather provocatively back last summer, and I received plenty of heat from it from uh, both sides, the libertarians and also the far left, where I said, "What does China make that we couldn't make ourselves? What do they have that we actually need besides cheap labor?" And then I asked the provocative question, which is how many more garages full of garbage of stuff we use once and throw away or give, give to, you know, give away to, you know, charities or sell at a discount do we need to sacrifice the, the, the center, the heartbeat of our country? And 
those arguments resonated, but now they're on fire. I've never seen such a response around that. And I think it's a true question. And I, to answer your question, John, I hope those debates happen. I really do. Um, I would love to see a full and total divestment of all uh, trade with China and all uh, manufacturing with China. I know that sounds extreme, but my my opinion and my ob- the way I build out that argument, which is if we are going to have sanctions against the evil Iranian regime, of which I support Iran, which is the number one state sponsor of terror, I would make the argument China is a far greater geopolitical foe and China's done more damage to our country than Iran has. And it's not even close. So if we have sanctions against Iran and you are not allowed to trade on the open market with the totalitarians of Iran, why on earth would you be allowed to trade with the Chinese Communist Party? And so I think we should take a page out of Japan's book. I think phase four of the stimulus, this probably won't happen because of the CCP's influence within the ruling class and our political leader. But I think that part of phase four stimulus has to be hundreds of billions of dollars to fully pay for the redomiciling costs of at least necessary manufacturing and necessary industries to get out of China in the next 12 months. If it costs money, we will pay your shipping fees. We'll pay for the equivalent of a U-Haul truck and trailer and find a place for you to get into the United States as soon as possible. Japan has already allocated $2 billion to fully divest their necessary industries from China. Yeah, Abe's done this, right? Yeah. And I, and again, if some of these industries say, well, we need access to cheaper labor markets and it's just not economic for us to go to America. First of all, I don't necessarily buy that as much as I used to, but then go to Laos or Cambodia, Vietnam, Philippines, Singapore, India, or Bangladesh. If that's really your business model, then there's plenty of other developing nations that you can go to. And I'm not, I'm not going to overly judge people if they have to do that. I do actually think that window is closing where Americans are going to demand higher quality products that are made in America by Americans. But if, again, if the textile industry, if they run the numbers and they're so convinced that their margins have to be made in developing nations with cheap labor, then why China? There's, there are dozens of other developing nations that have much, a much more friendly government and a moral structure of of society than the Chinese Communist Party does. And so I hope so, John. I pray because every dollar, every good, everything that we buy from the Chinese Communist Party goes to funding the potential demise of our country and everything that we hold near and dear from whether it be when they build islands in the South China Sea, whether it be intercontinental ballistic missiles, they're still conducting nuclear weapons tests. They have a million Muslims in concentration camps, the Belt and Road Initiatives. They just bought eight banks in Italy in the last six months. Uh, which is why Italy acts as if they don't want to do anything to upset China. So I, for one, think that China needs to be viewed like we viewed the Soviet Union after World War II. I am not calling for a military conflict with China. However, I, I think that while we still are the reserve currency of the world and we do have the leverage, we need to use it. Last thing I'll say is this, John, is we actually hold more cards against China than people realize. Um, not talked about enough, and I think it'd be a great you know thing for you to talk about on your wonderful news service which is actually in the 1930s and the 1920s, the Chinese uh, government, prior to the takeover of Mao and the Chinese Communist Party, they came to America and sold bonds to allow um, the Chinese government to build railroads and bridges. And there are a trillion dollars still to this day of bonds held by American citizens and American banks that the Chinese Communist Party say are not valid. But if you go back to the history of bonds, and Bill Bennett does a great job of this, right. sovereign debt cannot be canceled just because you assume power in a country. Uh, if you assume the assets, you assume the liabilities. We own a trillion dollars 
of Chinese debt. And I think it's time to do a call option on it very soon. That would drive the CCP nuts. They think they say it doesn't exist. Go to the international courts, go to the international monetary fund, place a hold on all U.S. dollar exchanges until that trillion dollars starts to get paid for. At the very least, we get interest payments on it. That is the most aggressive economically and politically sound counter offensive that we can do in the short term. Um, now, of course, they own debt as well of ours, but this idea that they're the only side that owns sovereign debt in this relationship is incorrect. We helped build China's infrastructure about 80 years ago, and I think it's time that we do a call option on that debt. Um, and that would, that, would, that, would, that would send them into uh, a place that they don't want to go. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, it's fun to see what a student of history you are, Charlie. It's really, uh, really impressive. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts and all you're doing in, in the, uh, with younger people today to educate them and to get them excited about liberty and connecting them to our founding fathers and our, our country. It's an amazing project that you've uh, been involved with and your insights today were, were just fantastic. So I can't thank you enough for joining us. Well, thanks, John. God bless you and keep up the great work. Thank you. I will. You have a good rest of the day. Take care. All right, folks, there you have it from Charlie Kirk. We'll be back in a second from a commercial break and I'll wrap things up. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events. And you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Until next week, when we get back together, please check the Just the News website often. We've got a lot of breaking news, a lot of big investigative projects going on. You know there's going to be more revelations on the Russia story between now and then on China and the pandemic. So check all that out and stay in touch with us. Uh, sign up for our emails. Check out our podcast. My good colleagues, David Brody and Cheryl Atkinson, have fantastic podcasts you should be listening to. Thank you for supporting our advertisers, the people who make this show possible, this podcast, make the Just the News website website possible. A lot of people say, how can we support your reporting, what you and the great team at Just the News is doing? And one quick answer is support the advertisers, the people who are supporting us, the businesses that even in the pandemic have shown support for our journalism, for our podcast, for our conversations. Please go out and support them. Go support your local businesses. As Charlie Kirk said, this is our 9-11 moment, our Pearl Harbor moment. The best thing we can do as Americans while being cognizant of our safety obligations and keeping our social distancing and being careful is to go out and support our fellow businesses and our fellow Americans in need in this time of isolation, in this time of economic disruption, in this time of health care. Uh, you have a great opportunity to do so. Start with our advertisers. Start with your neighbor. You're going to be glad you did it. And in the meantime, be safe, be healthy, be happy. Enjoy that time with your family. This is a special time in our homes. And we'll be back with next week with another edition of John Solomon Reports. More breaking news, more investigative stuff, more big interviews. Can't wait to be back with you next week.